From Vintage City Church in Fort Collins, Colorado, it's the Vintage Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Greg Sanders. Welcome on this third Sunday, third Sunday of the Advent season. The Advent season is a, is a time historically when, when I say historically, I mean for like the last 2,000 years historically, where, where the church will push pause on, on its journey and just begin to shift our focus towards the birth of the Christ and the celebration of Jesus. And, and so uh, we've been doing that and uh, we've been in a series we're calling Snapshots on Christmas where we're looking at the Christmas story from different vantage points through scripture and and kind of pulling characters out of the Christmas story to highlight what's going on with them, things we can learn from them, the way God dealt with them. The first week we looked at two characters. We looked at Zachariah and Elizabeth, a husband and a wife who, if you're familiar with the story, this husband and this wife had been longing and crying out for a child and were in their, their elderly years. They were post-60 and, and God met them he met them in the midst of their impossibility. They were believing for something that was absolutely impossible in the natural. And so we looked at their lives and we asked this question, what can we learn from them about what it looks like for us to trust God with our own impossibility? Last week we looked at uh, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is an interesting character. It's prophesied about John the Baptist as a young child that he'll be a man of great power in the spirit and power of Elijah. He'll walk in a specific holiness that we looked at, which is called the Nazarite vow. And, but the part that we felt like gets overlooked in this is that while these things were wonderful and they were spoken over John the Baptist, it was John's personal choice that was required for him to live into those callings. And from that, we just looked at a simple reality that what God did with John's life was he changed the world through it, changed history through it. Because John was willing to say yes to being consecrated, to being fully devoted to the Lord, to allowing the government of Scripture to lead him, to allowing God to guide his steps, even in the way he would live his daily life. And it brought us to a question, which is, if God could do that with John's devotion, with John's consecration, with John's holiness, what can God do with mine? when each of us makes that decision to fully give ourselves to the things of God. And so this week we pick up in our story, and we're taking a look at a man that is central to the story, but in my opinion, often overlooked. We're gonna take a look at Joseph, the father of Jesus. It's interesting that if you think about it, most of the Christmas teachings, preachings, even the story, Joseph almost seems ancillary to the equation. He's just part of it. And I want to take a look at his life and ask the question, really, what can we learn from this man? Because this is the guy that God chose to raise his son, which seems like it should cause us to ask why. What about his life is unique and significant, so much so that God would choose him? 
So if, you're with, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. If not, it'll be up on the screens for you. Matthew 1 verse 18 says, Now this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. Over in Luke 2, we read, At the time, at that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all returned to their own towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. So if we're going to answer the question, why Joseph? Really, there's, there's, there's a few things that come out through the scripture. And I think I, I want to use a question to kind of look at those. And the question is, what do we know about him? Well, the first thing we know about him is historically, Joseph, Joseph is from Nazareth and is referred to as a carpenter. Matthew 13, 55 says it this way. They're speaking about Jesus, but they say, you know, he's just a carpenter's son, and we know Mary, his mother, and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. How many have ever seen a bumper sticker, read a t-shirt, or heard the phrase, my boss is a Jewish carpenter? Great. The word in the Greek is tekton, and it's the word that's used to describe his trade. Now, in most translations in English, this word is translated as carpenter. In fact, throughout much historical teaching, it's been translated that way. While that is a possibility, it's actually far more likely that it means something different. Why? Let me give you some facts on it. Joseph is reported to be from Nazareth. The majority of architecture in Israel at this time, whether residential or commercial, is not built of wood. It's actually built of stone. A carpenter, or one that would derive a successful living in Israel, if he was going to be a woodworker, wouldn't live in Nazareth. He would live in Lebanon, where trees are plentiful. Because in this particular part of Israel, trees are a little more scarce. And he just wouldn't have enough to support a family. Tecton, if we look at it in its original language, this Greek word tecton, actually its simple definition means artisan builder. It deals with craftsmanship and the ability to construct. So there's a, there's, to further our understanding and maybe give a greater definition for why I think this is true, Nazareth is located just three miles from the ancient town of Zipporai. Why is that important? Under the rule of Herod Antipas, who was a Roman leader, Zipporai was undergoing a massive expansion and beautification project. It's a project that is so massive and has so much scope and scale that Zipporai would later become known as the Jewel of Galilee. It would become historically known for its buildings and its structure. In addition to that, located halfway between Nazareth and Zipporah, 1.5 miles in between, is one of the largest rock quarries of that area. So Joseph would have been strategically positioned 
to head towards Zipporah, I stop at the rock quarries to grab the materials he would need to build. According to one of the scholars I was reading from ancient Jewish culture, James Fleming, he says it this way, Jesus and Joseph would have formed nine out of ten projects from stone, either by chiseling, carving, or stacking blocks. You see, Joseph would have been in a perfect position geographically to function as a successful stonemason. Now, the Roman culture had this interesting clause. They didn't mind paying you well for your labor. They also didn't give you an option. If you were an artisan builder in the region, you were required to show up for their projects. They would come and say, we will pay you so you can live, but whether or not you're going to do this is a violation of our government. If you say no, it's going to go bad for you. And there's another clue for us if we just think through Scripture. In the book of Peter, Peter uses a couple phrases to describe Jesus. One of the phrases is chief cornerstone. Now, if you know much about construction, chief cornerstone deals with a specific rock that is perfectly formed so that the building can be structured and built off it so everything is plumb. And he says that Jesus is a stone that the builders rejected. Here's my question. If carpentry with wood was the the norm, why would we use verbiage about stonemasonry? You say, why is that important? Did we come for a history lesson? (laughs) It gives us insight to who Joseph was. Here's what we know about stonemasons. Very, very difficult job. These stonemasons had a shorter than average life expectancy because of how laborious the work was. It was a, a disciplined, difficult work. What else do we know about him? We know that he was engaged to be married. What does that mean in their culture? I would just submit to you a simple idea. Engagement in their culture meant something quite a bit different than it does in ours. In Jewish culture, the the range of, of marriage for men was anywhere from 17 and up. But most would generally develop their careers first due to the socioeconomic pressure. It was unlikely for a 17, 18-year-old to run out and get a wife because then they would have to provide for her because in this day, remember, women weren't given positions in the culture where they could earn an income at a level that would support a family. It's just the way it was. Men had to do that. And there's also, there's no mention of Joseph in connection with his father's house, which might give us insight that he's already been on his own and he's already established on his own. It was also highly common for men to marry in their late 30s because that would have given them time to establish their houses, to get all, the, all, all their ducks in a row, so to speak. And based upon those clues, my guess, and I'll put that in italics, my guess, I think he's in his late 30s probably. We can't know that for sure, but it helps paint the picture of who he was. What we do know for sure is he's heading into marriage, so he's heading into a different season in his life, probably has the natural excitement around it, but it meant he was ready to settle down and have a family. So out of that comes the question, is there any significance to how engagement's handled in their culture? Does this give us insight to who Joseph was? 
You see, the Jewish culture, is they have a different vantage point on engagement than we do. In our culture, engagement means I like you, you like me, we think we want to do life together, and we, until the moment we're married, we're kind of sure. We could call it off. See, in a Jewish culture, it was different. In a Jewish culture, they believed marriage was actually a legal covenant between three parties. The parties were the husband, the wife, and God. So the way that their, their contract language would work is they would literally come together in this first stage of marriage called engagement, or arusin is the, is the Hebrew word for it, and it means betrothal is what we would attach to it. They would come together, they would exchange something of value, and they would write contracts, and the contracts would go like this. I contract with you, covenant with you, man to wife, wife to man, and the man would make a contract with God, the wife would make a contract with God, and then they would assume that God made a contract with them. So there was this, this triangular nature of marriage. This is the state that we see Joseph in. What is interesting about this engagement process, Erusin, is in Jewish culture, Erusin was a legal marriage. But what would happen, instead of being legally married and then come together to live, they would get married and the wife would stay in her father's house for a year while the husband would go away and prepare the house for her to come to. But she was legally married, he was legally married, and all of the laws concerning adultery were applicable at that time. What this time was used for is a trustworthiness, character evaluation moment. We are in contract, in covenant together, yet we're going to be apart, thereby we can watch each other and understand, is there measurable, definitive character in each of us to stay faithful? This is the legal status that we find Joseph in. But Matthew 1.18 says this, but while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And there are several implications in the natural for this moment that I want to highlight. Number one, she was no longer a virgin, therefore creating a legal right for Joseph to apply for divorce. Now, you, I know the end of the story. You're like, yes, she was. She was a virgin. You don't know the story. That's bad Bible. Hear me out. From a public point of view, because she was pregnant, Joseph had the right to apply for a legal divorce because she had violated the contract which said, I'll be to you and you only. Secondly, she's now legally guilty of sexual intercourse. And I understand the argument is, but she was a virgin, but she was a virgin. I'm just saying level with me for a minute. Is the average person looking at Mary in the culture going to go, yep, that's what happened. No matter how faith-filled we are, if somebody walks in here and says that to us, all of us are going to go, no, 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 no. And so she's an adulteress at this moment, as viewed by law, which made her a candidate for being stoned publicly. And thirdly, her condition brought into question not only her ability to remain pure, not only her ability to remain chaste, it brought into question her father's ability and integrity because she was under his care when it happened. And he would be legally vulnerable to Joseph because of this. But if we continue in Matthew, it says, but Joseph, her fiance, being a just man, decided to break the engagement quietly so as not to disgrace her publicly. As he considered this, he fell asleep and 
angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to go ahead with your marriage to Mary, for the child within her has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. She will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this happened to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, a virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and he will be called Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him. He brought Mary home to be his wife, but she remained a virgin until her son was born. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee, and he took with him Mary, his fiancée, who was obviously pregnant at this time. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the village inn. And Joseph named him Jesus. There are several moments in that passage where the uniqueness of Joseph's person comes into view. The first one is this phrase, being a just man. How many in this room are black and white by nature? Right is right, wrong is wrong. You're not real big fans of all this love for gray. Raise them up, be proud. This phrase, being a just man, this is what it leans to. It means Joseph was a man who was governed by righteousness. And what it gives us is an understanding of his point of view about her pregnancy. She was wrong, and he wanted out. Because what he was after was a pure marriage, an undefiled marriage. There's another aspect about this verse that I think reveals his heart, and I love this. There's a gentleness in him, and guys, we would do well to learn from this because I think by nature, it is not our strength to be gentle. We tend to align with harshness much more easily. But I wanna, I wanna highlight this gentleness in Joseph. That he saw her condition as a mistake. He had no vengeance. Although he was legally entitled to stand her up in public, denounce her shameful behavior, causing her to suffer disgrace, he didn't want to do that. Instead, he chose to put her away quietly. And that gives us an indication of who he was. He was a man of mercy. And guys, I want you to hear this. What he understood was something important about leadership. Leadership covers even at the expense of self. You see, for Joseph to put her away quietly, he left in play the potential for the rumor mill to circulate about him. He didn't choose to stand up and set the record straight. Because leadership covers. There's another phrase, as he considered, which shows us something about his process and his, his mental process. The word in the Greek simply means to take time and be slow in decision-making. He's careful to consider all the information. And then I love this phrase, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded. Probably my favorite phrase in the Christmas story. He did what the angel of the Lord commanded. He was a man submitted to the leadership of heaven. How do we know that? Catch this. He was instantly obedient. This is the definitive mark 
of submission to the Lordship of heaven. I'd love to say it this way. My instant obedience reveals my surrendered heart. If I have to put time between my obedience and when God says it, I'm just not surrendered. That's the end of the story. And then there's this fourth phrase that I want to highlight. But she remained a virgin till after her son was born. If we read this story, there's nothing in the story that would indicate that the angel of the Lord invited Joseph into that behavior. There's nothing that would say Joseph was required to abstain from taking her as his wife. And yet, he does. And what is revealed here in this is that Joseph is a man in control of his passions. His passions aren't in control of him. I think the easiest way to say it is he's a guy driven by integrity, not by his passion. So we ask this question at the beginning, why Joseph? Why would God choose Joseph to raise his son? And I think from, from these phrases, we have an idea. It's these micro moments, and they, they create this understanding that I think what drew heaven into Joseph's life was the fact that Joseph was a man of character. Character is a funny word. We want to treat character like gifting. Some people have it, some people don't. You see, gifting is a grace, something released to us supernaturally. We didn't do anything for it. It's just ours, something the Lord decided we should have. Character is different. Character is developed and shaped by obedience to the Word of God and the voice of God. Character is developed when we endure the educational process of God. You say, Greg, what are you talking about? What educational process? I wasn't aware school was in session. Let me just tell you right now, school is in session. You see, our daily lives are the arena that he's using to teach us. The scriptures are our tutorial. They're our roadmap. They're intended to be so in us that we live from them. And his voice is the guide in those areas that we we just can't figure out what the answer is. You see, when I learn how to face my everyday life through the lens of scripture and with the leadership of his voice, I start to mature and my character develops. I'd love to give you a phrase that I think is haunting. The development of kingdom character is an intentional and proprietary decision. No matter how much I love you, no matter how much I long to see the kingdom shaped in you, I cannot choose character for you. You cannot choose it for me. We can only choose it for ourselves. It doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are. No matter how much your parents want you to be a person of character. No matter how much your kids need you to be a person of character. 
It must be developed personally, proprietarily. I have to want it to develop it. So I'd say it may be simpler. My character's my choice. And we're not talking about any character. We're talking about kingdom character. Because I think from Joseph's life, we see some principles that are important. It is in my everyday life that God will use circumstances. Catch this. In my everyday life, in the circumstances I face, God will use those to reveal my character. It's also through what I face every day that God will give me the opportunity to grow my character. And this discipline of living into kingdom principles, allowing grace and mercy to govern me, allowing the scriptures to be my guide, it is this discipline that grows my character. Why? Well, what we see in Joseph's life is a simple principle. That God is looking for people of character to elevate and to release divine destiny into. There are things God wants to do in my day and in my lifetime, in your day and in your lifetime. And he's looking for us to make the decision towards character. Where we will put away childish things and we will say, I am going to allow the scriptures to govern how I live. I'm going to allow his voice to govern how I live. What do I mean? I mean how I interact. I mean how I drive. I mean how I shop. I mean how I handle my family. How I am at work. Does the scripture have enough voice in my life to lead the way I live every day? Because this is what Joseph was. This is what caused God to lean into him and say, you're the man that I trust to raise my son. Let's stand this morning. I want to take bread and cup this morning. If you're here this morning, you say, wow, I need some help. I need some people to pray with me. Hey, that's okay. We get it. There'll be family members at the windows with lanyards on. They'd love to pray with you. If you're here and you say, you know what, I've been, I just need healing, physical Great, we love to pray for that. We believe we've been watching the Lord heal people right and left. It's been quite fun. But this morning, I want to focus our attention on this question. Am I a man? Am I a woman of character? Have I made the decision to let the principles of my God govern my daily life? I'd love to, as we take the bread and cup and we hold these simple elements, you know, the, the bread representing all the incredible sacrifice Jesus went through for us. The blood representing the freshness of the covenant where God doesn't say, I need you to rise up and be good enough. He just says, I'm just going to clean you and fix you and cover you. I want to celebrate that moment, but I would love for us to, in our friendship groups, in our family units, or, or individually, just ask that question. And then I'll close this up. So let's take bread and cup. Thanks for listening. For more great content, please visit us on the web at vintagecitychurch.com.